Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of a Light Unto My Path podcast. I am your host, Howard Sides. Today, we're going to uh, pick up our study in chapter 15 of Revelation. Uh, we were kind of in the middle of a uh, one of the main points uh, that we talked about, but I ran out of time, so I'll just try and pick up where we left off. Chapter 15 is only eight verses long, uh, but there's quite a bit of information there. That's why it was uh, taking so long to get through it. So uh, let's just read the chapter, and then we'll uh, get to the point where we're at and just conclude that uh, study for today, hopefully. All right? All right, Revelation chapter 15, verse 1. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who will not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou art, uh, for thou alone, uh, no, for thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. And after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God, who liveth forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. Okay, so uh, chapter 15 is broken up into two parts. Uh, we're basically at the end of the first part. But anyway, the first part is verses 1 through 4 covers uh, the point or the thought, uh, a period of waiting, a period of waiting, verses 1 through 4. And then verses 5 through 8 is a place of worship, a place of worship. Uh, within this first uh, thought, the period of waiting, uh, there are four thoughts, uh, four points to bring out within that. Verse 1 is the sign in heaven. Uh, in the first part of verse 2, there is the sea of glass. Uh, the second part of verse 2 is the saints who were martyred. And then verses 3 through 4 is the song of Moses and the Lamb. And within that thought, the song of Moses and Lamb, uh, it's broken up into two parts. First is what the ransomed will sing in verse 3 and the first part of verse 4. And then the second part of verse 4 is what the redeemed will sing. And so we're kind of in that uh, breakdown of... Uh, these songs here. So the first point, what the ransomed will sing. And it's it represents uh the Old Testament saints and then what the why the redeemed will sing uh is pretty much the New Testament saints. So there's the two thoughts there and uh the two different types of songs. So all right the first one uh what the ransomed will sing 
And that's uh, that phrase, great and marvelous are thy works. And th that statement about the works there, um, you know, many people today talk about all the, you know, they want to see a miracle and, and this sort of thing. And, and the Bible's very clear that these miracles uh, were only for uh, the Jewish nation. Uh, God never intended for uh, miracles to be a manifesting thing for Christians. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit uh, not saying that miracles do not happen uh, in this day and age. I certainly do believe they do happen. And um, some things just take place that you can't explain it any other way. I mean, it's the movement of the hand of God or the protection of God or uh, the healing powers of God. Uh, they come out in different ways, but uh, you still have to call it a miracle. Uh, but we're... Uh, God doesn't work through us in, in, in the facet of miracles. Uh, that, that is something that was meant for the uh, Old Testament saints or the Jewish nation, if you will. And, and so in that phrase, great and marvelous are their works. Now, the expressive words great and marvelous are carried over from uh, verse 1. Uh, now, notice that the word are in your King James Bible is italicized. If you look at that, you know, what that means is a little scribbly word. And, and it's what the, if you're in a King James Bible, a word that is italicized like that is added to the thought. Now, the Hebrew language, if you know anything about the Hebrew language um, and even parts of the Greek language, uh, did not regularly use adjectives and adverbs in the sense uh, it would state the noun and a verb uh, and and you're kind of left to put the missing information in there and now while th this is not technically considered adding or or taking away from the word of God uh, it it does have its points where uh, words like that are put in it doesn't change the thought it doesn't change the meaning but it helps us to understand um, if you know anything about translation, uh, a literal translation, if you're reading it, uh, very hard to follow. And it's because of the way our sentence structure differs from, in the English language, it's like totally different from every other language, where we'll put the process in play. You know, uh, the man walked across the yard and closed the door uh, on his green car. Um and for an example, in the other languages, it'll be uh, the green door of the car was closed by the man walking across the yard. Uh, it kind of flips around the order. And so it's kind of hard to follow. So um, these words are italicized and, and they made them italicized so that you know that they were added to uh, tie the verse together. It, it wasn't something that was translated strictly from... Uh, the original translation, that was a word they added, and they wanted to make sure that we knew that. So that, that's why you see those italicized words uh, in your Bible. So between great and marvelous is this word are, and it is italicized. Now this indicates, again, that it was added to help us understand the sentence. The phrase in its original flow would be, uh, great, marvelous, thy works, Lord God. So 
that's kind of why it's put there. So the phrase could apply to the works of God in the past, the present, or also the great work just ahead, which most assume it is talking about. Uh, James Burton Kaufman, in his commentary, um, <clears throat> makes a statement about that, and I quote, There is not a single word about their own achievement. Self is at last forgotten. Selfishness is finally destroyed. In heaven, the song of Moses and the Lamb is exclusively an anthem of loving praise to the Almighty, end quote. So it's, it's an expression uh, not of what they're uh, able to do or what they're about to do or, or what they're capable of doing. It's about the work itself. It, it's, it's, a, it's, it's about the Lord God, okay? That's, that's the point they're trying to get across there. Uh, the next phrase, Lord God Almighty. Uh, now, this phrase, as this, Lord God Almighty, is used exactly five times in the book of Revelation. The first mention is chapter 4 and verse 8. The second time is chapter 11 and verse 17. Uh, right here in chapter 15 and verse 3. Uh, fourth time in chapter 16 and verse 7. And then the fifth time in chapter 21 and verse 22. And the number five for the five times it's mentioned is the number of grace. So it's very similar to the Old Testament expression here, Yahweh, God of hosts. Lord God Almighty is the same as the is what we're talking about here, the Old Testament expression, Yahweh, God of hosts. Now the similarity here uh, gives an awesomeness and impressiveness to the focus of this praise. Albert Barnes uh, in his commentary, uh, he says, and I quote, He whose praise is celebrated is Lord Yahweh, the uncreated and eternal one, that he is God the creator, upholder, and sovereign of all things, and that he is almighty, having all power in all worlds. <clears throat> all these names and attributes are suggested when we think of redemption, for all the perfections of a glorious God are suggested in the redemption of the soul from death. It is the Lord, the ruler of all worlds. It is God, the maker of the race and the father of the race, who performs the work of redemption. And it is a work which could be accomplished only by one who is almighty. So the use of Lord, God, and almighty all have a specific meaning for what the thought is being tried, uh, translated here. Uh, so that we can understand truly what is uh, being said. So not only is the song uh, wrapped up in, in the song, we know how great thou art, uh, but the, the same expression is also in how good thou art, how good thou art. And that next phrase, just and true are thy ways. Now just tells us he is perfectly righteous. True tells us he keeps his promises. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26, it tells us, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation, and basically propitiation means in our language satisfaction, to be a satisfaction, uh, through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of, uh, that word also means forgiveness for the forgiveness or the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance. Uh, forbearance is uh, a word that basically means a probation period through the forbearance of God. 
uh, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just. And by being just, uh, we know that sin had to be paid for. It could not be just forgotten and wiped away. It had to be paid for. Had to be. Uh, so that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Uh, now that phrase, the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus, uh, Schofield has a good note on that when he says, I quote, uh, propitiation is not placating a vengeful God, but rather it is satisfying the righteousness of a holy God, thereby making it possible for him to show mercy righteously, end quote. So that's basically what he's saying there. All right, so just and true are thy ways. That phrase, are thy ways. Uh, the ways is a plural word. Uh, all the ways or the acts of God in dealing with his children as well as with the enemies of the church. All right. The next phrase, thou king of saints. Thou king of saints. Some ancient texts, such as the Coptic and Cyprian versions, use the phrase king of nations. While other ancient texts, such as the Aleph, the Vulgate, and Syriac, use the phrase king of saints. Archibald Thomas Robertson, in his work, Word Pictures in the New Testament, says, and I quote, Thou king of nations, ho basileus ton ionon, like Jeremiah 10.10 10, and 1 Timothy 1.17. Some ancient manuscripts have the king of the saints and some the king of the nations, like Jeremiah 10.7. John thus combines in Hebraic tone the expressions of the old and the new in the song to the glorified Messiah. So, end quote there. So, uh, <clears throat> we see the thought in, in this expression, how great thou art, how good thou art, and it also tells us how glorious thou art uh, in this uh, next part, in uh, beginning part of verse 4. It says, Who shall not fear thee, O Lord? Now, this is rather a rhetorical question in that all people will indeed fear and honor God. Uh, the Bible clearly says that, 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 you know, every man's going to bend the knee. Uh, everyone's going to fear him and respect him. And so that's what it's talking about there. Now, this expression suggests that the judgments which are about to be unleashed upon the beast and his image should and would teach people to reverence and fear God. Now, it is possible that the idea of all is also relevant in that the people of the earth will witness firsthand the effects of the punishment of not fearing God. Now, we've seen passages before, I believe in, um, trying to pull one out just so I can tell you right where it is. Um, a good example, um, chapter 9 and, and verse 20. Chapter 9 and verse 20. And this is after uh, the sixth trumpet unfolds. And note what it says in verse 20. It says, And the, uh, the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. So they're going to see this stuff go, excuse me, they're going to see this stuff going on, and they're going to know where it's coming from. Uh there's actually a word in here that, that says that they have no choice but to know uh, that it's the judgment of God, but yet they don't change their ways. They still continue to do the things that they were going to do. So 
they know firsthand the effects of the punishment of not fearing God. Um, that next phrase there, and glorify thy name. Now, glorify means to honor. Uh, why would they not? Who can not fear thee, O Lord, and honor thy name? Uh, now, as a consequence of these judgments, men will be brought to honor God and to acknowledge him as the ruler of the earth. All right, so we see this point, uh, what the ransomed will sing. And now we'll look at this point, why the redeemed will sing. Why the redeemed will sing. And that's the second part of verse four here. And there are uh, three thoughts on this idea. First is the majestic virtue of God. The majestic virtue of God. The magnificent victory of God. And then the manifest vengeance of God. All of this in this one half of a verse. <laughs> okay. All right. So uh, the statement, for thou only art holy. The majestic virtue of God, for thou only art holy. God will show himself to be a holy God, uh, hating sin and loving righteousness and truth. Now, Albert Barnes, uh, in his commentary, is talking about this word only here, and he says, I quote, the expression is used, of course, in a comparative sense. He is so pure that it may be said that in comparison with him, no one else is holy. End quote. And, th and that's true. He alone is holy, and, and there is none other. Uh, so that's the majestic virtue of God. Now the magnificent victory of God. And that is uh, brought out in, in the phrase, For all nations shall come and worship before thee. The magnificent victory. Now the New Testament ties the destruction of the world power with the promise of the speedy acknowledgement of the world that he is king of kings and lord of lords. Uh, Romans 14, verses 11 through 12, says, For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give, it, uh, give account of himself to God. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, so that is talking about the magnificent victory of God. Uh, the final thought on that is the manifest vengeance of God, the manifest vengeance of God, and that's in the final statement there, for thy judgments are made manifest. Now, everyone will clearly witness the judgments unleashed on the beast. It's out in the open. There's nothing hidden. You're not going to be able to conceal it. Uh, many things that happen in the world today are concealed. God's going to do all of this out in the open. He's not going to leave anything to doubt. He's not going to leave anything to question. He's certainly not going to leave anything to uh, the idea that someone else is doing this. Uh, they're going to know. They're going to know. Uh, Fred Brooks, 
in his commentary, he writes, and I quote, uh, take a straight stick and put it into the water and it will seem crooked. Why? Because we look upon it through two mediums, air and water. There lies the deceptio vicious, basically the decepted vision. Uh, thence it is that we cannot discern a right. Thus the proceedings of God in his justice, which in themselves are straight, without the least obliquity, seem unto us crooked, that wicked men should prosper, and good men be afflicted, that servants should ride on horseback, and princes go on foot. These are things that make the best Christians stagger in their judgments. And why? But because they look upon God's proceedings through a double medium of flesh and spirit, that so all things seem to go cross through. Indeed, they are right enough. And hence it is that God's proceedings in his justice are not so well discerned, the eyes of man alone being not competent competent judges thereof. And that's very true. Um, I've heard many different examples of of us trying to see the judgments of God and explain it. And there's things that we just don't understand about it. And, and this is a, a great example of what he's talking about here. Um, like when you put a stick in the water and, and it looks like it goes straight to the water and then under the water, it, it bends. And it's because we're looking through the air and we're looking through water. And he compares that to us trying to look at the judgments of God and being able to discern it rightly. And we can't because we're still of the, looking at it through a double medium of flesh and spirit. And so that's a good point there about why thy judgments are made manifest. Here, they're going to be as clear as they possibly can. Now, what do we learn of heaven from this small passage? Uh, we First, we still maintain our individuality. Our memories will be intact. Who else could the Song of Moses be remembered? Or how else could the Song of Moses uh, be remembered and repeated there? So we're going to have our memories. We're going to remember things that happen here on earth. Uh, the second point is that we will be a community of believers. Now note, both the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb will be in perfect harmony, sung together, for John mentions them together. Uh, Fred, Books, uh, Fred Brooks, excuse me, again, uh, in his commentary says, and I quote, uh, Think of it, the voices that all go up to Christ, all also using Moses' experience and Moses' song words. It is that Christian truth. Your experience is mine, and mine is yours. Every man's victory I sing, and every man sings mine. As part of that same salvation of the Lamb, which has rescued and sanctified you or me, or the man who sings. Oh, get some of this heavenly power of communion of saints now. Do not let anything cut you off from a life that is showing God's victory. Sing its song. Put yourself in its experience and place. <clears throat> and you will sing your own song and feel your own place all the better and more fully, end quote. Okay, so that's two of the thoughts that we learn about heaven from this um, small passage. There's one more. There's a third one, and that is what we will be thinking about. What we'll be thinking about. Uh, Moses' words will be transposed onto heaven's musical score, and every spiritual victory over our enemies here on earth should put a song in our hearts. I mean, we just mentioned a while ago, and even David said, you know, why do the heathen rage? Uh, and, and, you know, why, why do they prosper? And we always seem to suffer every victory we do get um, and experience. Um, we, we should sing its praise that, that God allowed it to happen. He doesn't have to let it happen. 
but he does let it happen. So we, we should celebrate it through song of praise. <clears throat> and Fred Brooks, once more here, comments on this thought. And he says, I quote, let a man triumphantly resist a temptation, conquer a passion, win a new grade of character by God's power. And he has the very sentiments exalting and moving his heart and life, which the new song will have in riches, uh, in richest and most complete harmony. Uh, end quote. Okay, so that covers the first thought, period of waiting. And let's get into uh, this final thought here in this chapter, um, verses 5 through 8, the place of worship. The place of worship. And that is broken up into one, two, three thoughts. Uh, the messengers of wrath in verses 5 through 6. The messengers of wrath, verses 5 through 6. Uh, the mediators of wrath in verse 7. The mediators of wrath, verse 7. And then the final thought, verse 8, the manifestation of wrath. The manifestation of wrath. Okay, so first one, the messengers of wrath, verses 5 through 6. Uh, and there's two things to point out there. What is opened and what is observed. First, what is opened. Uh, notice in the verse it says, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven. The temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven. All right, now this temple is mentioned 15 times between chapter 7 and chapter 21. 15 times. And if that if you get the numbers of that, that's 3 times 5 equals 15. So number 3 is the number of the Trinity. 5 is the number of grace. And 15 equals the number of divine grace. Now in chapter 4, verse 1, John tells us that a door was opened in heaven. A door was opened in heaven. And in chapter 11, 19, he sees the temple of God, where he, uh, while here, he calls what he sees the temple of the testimony. So in chapter 4, 1, the door's open. And 11, 19, what he sees is the temple of God. And here he calls it the temple of the testimony. So what's going on? Now, this progression speaks to us of the Old Testament tabernacle. Now, the door represents the gate to the courtyard. Only an Israelite was allowed inside that gate, the gate of the courtyard. Now, the temple of God refers to the holy place. And the only ones allowed in the holy place was those of the Aaron priesthood, the, the children of Aaron, and of course himself, but his children in that priesthood, in the holy place. Now, the temple of the testimony refers to that most inner sanctum uh, or or chamber, and that was the Holy of Holies. And the only one that was allowed in there was who, the one who was the high priest. There's only one of them at a time. And he was that until he died, and then whoever took his place was the next. But it was only the holy, uh, uh, the high priest. And even then, he was only allowed inside that Holy of Holies once a year. That was on that Day of Atonement. So the Ark of the Covenant is referred to as the Ark of the Testimony in Numbers. So the temple of the testimony, therefore, must represent the innermost shrine of heaven itself. Okay, so that's what is open. Now, what is observed? What is seen? Uh, first of all, uh, we'll see the angels coming out. Second, we'll see the angels carrying forth. And then third, we'll see the angels clothed in. So the angels coming out, the angels carrying forth, and the angels clothed in. 
uh, the angels coming out. Now, it is critical to notice that the angels are coming from the presence of the Ark of the Covenant, the very law of God. Now, the angels coming out symbolizes to us that the time of grace is over and the time of judgment has come. So they're bringing forth this law and they're going to execute this law as it is, the judgment of God. So that's the angels coming out. Second th thought there, the angels carrying forth. Uh, now, it's in that verse, uh, in the phrase there, it says, having the seven plagues. Now, after the seven seals, and then there were the seven trumpets, why is there a third set of seven judgments necessary? I mean, certainly you'd think after the first one, uh, some people would get the clue. And certainly if not then, uh, when you ramp it up, and it, it reminds me uh, in thinking about this thought, um, those of you who ha uh, have experienced them or know anything about them, uh, a tornado, uh, they, they have the F1, the or the, I think they call them the EF1s now. I think it's a whole new scale. But anyway, just so everybody knows what we're talking about, there's an F1, F2, F3, F4, and an F5. And of course, the F5 is the absolute worst, F1 being the weakest. Uh, same thing with an earthquake. Uh, and it's on the, um, uh, uh, the, the seismic action is how it's measured. And I, I can't remember exactly the, the math behind it, but a uh, Richter scale. Okay, so actually, I, I took a minute and, and paused there for a second and, and looked it up. An earthquake is, is registered or measured on what is called the Richter scale, R-I-C-H-T-E-R, -E if you want to look it up. And and th there's an earthquake like a, 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 and it's on a tenth of a number bay. It could be a 1.6, it could be a 2.9, it could be a 3.4, uh, whatever that is. But on the, the whole number, like a, a earthquake that's a 2.0, is more destructive than an earthquake at a 1.0. And each whole point uh, means that the power of the earthquake grows by a, a factor of 10. So an earthquake that is a 2.0 is 10 times more powerful than an earthquake that is a 1.0. And so when you have uh, earthquakes, <laughs> I mean, think about that. You have earthquakes up to 9 point something. That's 900 or 90 times more powerful than some of these earthquakes at a one point something. Uh, and, and here in North Carolina, believe it or not, uh, we actually do have tremors uh, very close by some places, and you don't even notice them. Uh, so so you can see the scale does jump quite significantly there. And, and so <clears throat> when, when you get into these judgments, now you've had the seven seals, and, and listen, they're, they're bad enough. Uh, if you go back and review what happens in each of the seven seals, uh, uh, it's bad enough. I, I mean, it's it's destruction on a level that we haven't even seen before. That that's it. Uh, certainly, that's going to get some people's attention, right? Well, uh, apparently not. Not what we, you would think. So, thence there's the seven trumpets, and these are ramped up on a far greater scale than what the Richter scale is. Uh, some people tend to think that some of these judgments are just, uh, you know, it's a, you know, well, you got these judgments, you got those judgments, they're all the same, equal power and that sort of thing. Oh, no, the trumpets are far worse than the seals are. And the level of destruction, it, it's, it's mind-boggling. And it affects everything from nature to the, to the humans, everything. So, so the question remains, if people ain't got the point by then, 
why is this third set of uh, judgments necessary? And actually, the next chapter, Revelation chapter 16, actually describes and tells us why. Now, after the fourth vial is poured out, verse 9 tells us, And men were scorched with great heat, and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues. And they repented not to give him glory. They repented not to give him glory. Is that not explaining just how hard-headed we as humans are? are, if we're honest, we are, after the fifth vial, verse number 11 goes on, it says, and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. They repented not of their deeds. Again, that's not enough. How about the third time? After the seventh vial, verse number 21, and there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven every stone about the weight of a talent. And man blasphemed God because of the plague of the hell, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. Exceeding great. Now, remember, I just told you, the trumpets are far worse than the seals. The vials or the bowls that come after the trumpets are even more magnified than that. And even yet, men still blasphemed God. And it tries to explain to us just how bad things are in that last phrase, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. It's not just bad, it's real bad, bad, bad. How, do you, how else do you explain something that you've never uh, experienced? Now, note that the angels already have the seven plagues in their possession, yet verse 7 says they are later given the bowls or the vials. Now, the plagues are the essence of of the judgment, while the bowls or the vials are the instrument of the judgment. There's no contradiction there, okay? They brought forth the judgment. They have the essence of what's going to be carried out with them, and then when they're given the bowls, that's the instrument of how they uh, pour it out, how they give it out, okay? So, we see the thought, the angels coming out. Next, we see the angels carrying forth, and then finally, we see that the angels clothed in, what the angels are clothed in. Uh, and it says, pure and white linen. Pure and white linen. Now, pure white symbolizes God's purity and holiness. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5, the second part of that verse says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. No darkness at all. Linen symbolizes righteousness in action. These angels are wearing the garments which tells of their commission to go forth and pour out the acts of judgment. That next phrase, girded with golden girdles. Girded with golden girdles. Girding is symbolic of preparation. They're preparing for a task that they are about to carry out. Uh, They're preparing to bring maximum glory to God in causing all creatures to fall on their knees and acknowledge the sovereignty and holiness of God. Gold is symbolic of the deity of God. Gold is symbolic of the deity of God. All right, so we see the messengers of wrath. Now let's look here at the mediators of wrath. The mediators of wrath in verse 7. Uh, in that first part of that verse, it says, and one of the four beasts. Now in chapter 4, verse 7, we learn that each of the beasts had a unique character. Uh, the first was like a lion, which represented strength. 
The second like a calf, which is bravery. The third had a face like a man, wisdom. And the fourth was like a flying eagle, swiftness. Now I can go ahead and tell you, and later on we get into chapter 18, I actually broke this thing down. These four beasts are actually, I believe, uh, what are called in the Bible in the Old Testament, the seraphims. You have the cherubims, you have the seraphim, and there's even actually a third rank uh, that mentions them in Ezekiel uh, when they're called the wheels. Uh, I, I can't remember right offhand the, the name of it. It's, it's the Hebrew word for wheel. It's like Ophrenim or Ophrenim or, or something, but we'll get into that. Uh, we get into chapter uh, 18, but here it does mention these four beasts, and I I, I believe these four beasts are the uh, the four seraphim. Now, the difference is a cherubim uh, has all four faces. Each of the four cherubims have all four faces. The four seraphim, however, each has one of the faces, and they all represent something. So, again, the first was a lion, which represents strength. The second had a face like a calf, which represents bravery. The third has a face like a man, which represents wisdom. Uh, and the fourth was uh, had the face of like an eagle, which was uh, representing swiftness, like a flying eagle, swiftness. Now, we are not told which of these beasts gives the angels the bowls. But John Phillips, in his commentary, suggests that it could be the one with the face like a man. And he says, and I quote, We are not told which of the, cher which of the seraphim handed the ominous bowls to the doom's, uh, angels of doom, but perhaps it was the one with the human face, since man has been the chief cause of the curse. <laughs> uh, Romans 5, end quote. Romans 5, 12 tells us, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. I know some of you uh, walk around earth thinking you're God's greatest gift to mankind, you know, but humbly speaking, uh, we, we have no glory or no honor within us. The Bible tells us we're all sinners. We've all sinned. We're all guilty of it. Uh, now notice the next phrase, gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God. Now note that the seven seals and the seven trumpets came forth from the throne of heaven, while these seven bowls come forth from the temple of heaven. Now these vials or bowls symbolize God's judgment and the speed with which they will be poured out. And, and let me make the thought here, uh, or the point here, when you think of a bowl, uh, many of us, I know we have bowls in our kitchens, you know, Tupperware bowls, or cooking bowls, or whatever, salad bowls, uh, and most bowls that we use today uh, have a, uh, are, are a deeper bowl. It's meant to hold stuff. The type of bowl it's mentioning here is a very shallow bowl. It for the best kind of explanation, I could say it's like a plate uh, with the sides turned up just barely. It's a very shallow bowl. And the reason they're shallow indicates how fast these judgments would be emptied out instead of slowly poured out, such as with a large bowl with high sides on it, with large walls on it. Now, those who refuse to drink of the cup of salvation will now be drowned with the cup of judgment. And that's what it's talking about. Um, these things are going to be poured out so fast uh, there's no reaction. Uh, there's not meant to be a reaction. Uh, this is all about judgment. This is about payment. Uh, not, not to change the mind. The period of grace is gone. So we see here, 
the mediators of wrath, verse 7. Now finally, verse 8, the manifestation of wrath. <clears throat> Excuse me, the manifestation of wrath. It says, and the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. Now, there is a difference to note here. Uh, the difference between smoke and a cloud. Now, when the tabernacle was finished by Moses, and also when Solomon completed the temple, there was a cloud, this kind of glory, that came down, but no mention of smoke. Now, the cloud symbolizes grace, while the smoke mentioned here symbolizes judgment. That's the difference between cloud and smoke. All right, uh, the next phrase, and no man was able to enter into the temple. No man was able to enter into the temple. Entering the temple is representative of God's grace to welcome all who would enter. But now there is no entering as there is only an outpouring of his wrath, and nothing will interrupt it. So, things have drastically changed here at this point. Uh, we always portray God as, as being gracious, uh, as being long-suffering, as being uh, uh, patient with us, always saying, come, come, come. Well, at this point, there is no hearing, come, Come, come. It's all go, go, go. And it's to these angels carrying out these judgments of God. It's it's all about judgment. There is absolutely no grace in this at all. And, and so we see that here in this chapter. And as we get into chapter 16, which is basically a description of the pouring out of these uh, bowls of wrath. Um, and it actually describes all seven. Uh, if you remember, uh, with the seven seals... It mentions the six uh, seals and what happens. Well, the seventh, when you break it, is the introduction of the seven trumpets. And then the trumpets do the same thing. There's six trumpet blasts, and they all have all these destructive powers with them. But then the seventh trumpet, uh, when it blasts, it's like the introduction of these seven vials. Uh, these seven vials, uh, there are no more judgments after, after, well, the great white throne judgment, but as far as uh, a pouring out of God's wrath on, on man and the earth and 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 evil itself, uh, th these these vials are it. This, this is the last of them. Um, this is the final straw, if you will. And, and uh, uh, once you get to the seventh, it, it actually describes the um, wrath that's involved in it and that sort of thing. Okay, so uh, that's chapter 15. And we'll get into chapter 16 in the next study. And I hope you'll join me on that because I, I know... I know how people are. Uh, they want to know, oh, I want to know what's going to happen during the Revelation. I, I want to know all the all the good stuff. You know, what's going to happen to this? What's going to happen to that? And all the symbols and things. There's a lot. I've said it before. There's a lot of symbology in the book of Revelation. And I tend to believe, personally, that that's why many uh, pastors and teachers uh, today kind of shirk or, or stay away from Revelation. Uh, it intimidates a lot of Christians. There is an immense amount of symbolism uh, in the next few chapters, 16, 17, and 18. And hopefully uh, we'll be able to have the time and to break them down. I have, when I go through Sunday school, uh, I used a overhead projector uh, and displayed a lot of the images that we'll be talking about. You may want to have a piece of paper ready 
uh, with a pen or pencil and be able to write down uh, what I'm explaining to you because I want you to be able to look it up and know some of the things that I'm talking about as I go through it. I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to be able to look it up yourself. Um, that's what's unique about this podcast. I'm not here telling you what the Bible says. Uh, we're going through it together and reading what it says and then expounding on what the thought is behind it and, and then you go and study it yourself. I'm not here to tell you what to think. Um, I'm just I'm just here to try and uh, give you a better understanding of what's being said so that you can go and investigate it yourself. And, and that's the way the Bible is. Yes, we have pastors. Yes, we have teachers. Uh, but we should all be doing the studying ourselves. And God's very clear about that. We, we're human just like everyone else is. Uh, we can make mistakes. We can make errors. And, and there are actually some out there who are, are straight out practicing apostasy. They meaningfully lie uh, to compensate for either A, they don't want to tell you the truth, or B, uh, they want to make you feel better about yourself so that it, it reflects on them. Uh, that's not what the Bible's about at all. It, it's about a hard, honest truth. The Bible describes itself as a double-edged sword. That thing cuts both ways. Not just one way, it cuts both ways. So if it doesn't have an effect on you, then something's wrong. Uh, that, that, there's no clearer way to explain it than that. Something may be wrong. Okay, all right, so uh, we're done with chapter 15. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, it's setting up some of the the most descriptive and, I don't really want to use the word action field, but, but there's a lot going on uh, in chapter 16, 17, and 18 uh, leading up to the very end of things. And so uh, hopefully you'll join me with that. I appreciate you being here today and listening to this podcast. Um, I ask that you pray for me, pray for our country, uh, pray for each other, um, pray for your families, and pray for your local church. I'll tell you that these are times that are trying all of us, uh, and sometimes we tend to forget just, just how hard it is on the local church and the pastor leading each of these flocks. Remember to pray for your pastor. Don't ever stop doing that. <laughs> Always pray for your pastor. Uh, you just, we really just don't know uh, some of the things they go through. I'll tell you. All right. So uh, once again, thank you for listening. God bless you and have a great and wonderful day.